Hello, everybody. This is Two Guys Five Movies. This is one of your co-hosts, Chris Gasper. This is Frank Pellicone. And the date is September 7, 2019. And tonight's episode is episode 46, and we are covering the top five modern crime films. It feels like this is... We've been talking about this for close to a year, I think. Like, this is one of the initial ones I think we actually talked about in the first three months of doing this podcast. Yeah, I think And it just kept right. getting pushed back and back and back and... I would also never give you a list. So. Right, yeah. <clears throat> Even though I think the list was exactly what it was a, That's a year true. ago, probably. <clears throat> um, so, yeah, this is... Um, I, I think this is a pretty big list in general. It covers a lot of ground. Uh, we're defining modern from 1990 on, so uh, to present time. So, it, it covers a, a, a lot of different movies. Um there's a number of movies as I was kind of researching old episodes and like, you know, just crime films in the past 30 some years. There's a lot that's been on previous lists that I wanted to ask you about to see if any, if you thought any of those movies would have been on this top five. Hmm. So, um, there's not that I want to talk about them too much because we've talked about them too much in the past few months, but, um, right. any of those Tarantino movies that would have made this, I would have thought about Jackie Brown probably. Okay. I think that'd be the only one that I would really think of. Again, like I don't like Reservoir Dogs as much as I used to, and I think Pulp right. Fiction is more of like a pop culture film set in like a crime universe, mm-hmm. whereas Jackie Brown's like an actual crime movie, I think. Right. Um, things that would fall under crime that we've discussed previously that would prob- probably fit on this list. Um, Zodiac? Uh, nah. No. Uh, I Saw the Devil? Hmm. No, I think that more of like, I think of that more of like a slasher serial killer movie. Uh, old boy. No, uh, uh-uh. no, that's action more to me than crime. Okay. That's, that's the only ones I could find from previous podcasts to see if, um, I would have put heat on the list. Oh, right. We yeah. Talked about heat yeah. yeah so that was the same episode as Jackie Brown that we yeah. talked about that. Um, oh no, that was the heist movie episode. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. That's Jackie that. Brown's heist movie. Was that heist? Mm. Oh, okay. What was the best? I can't even remember what the top five '90s movies were. Now, True Romance. That's what you had on there, right? Right. Yeah. That's that that's, that's going to be its own any... special episode. It's going to be on a special episode, like here. That wouldn't have made the list anymore, right? Now that I'm an adult. <laughs> um. So some other movies that I want to just run across that take place over the past thirty years. Um, a lot of them much more recent, two thousands probably. But um, what about Guy Ritchie and your general feelings on those Guy Ritchie movies? I absolutely despise Guy Ritchie, and I don't like those movies at all. <laughs> Why do you despise Guy Ritchie? Um, I think it's really like, I think it's a lot of really juvenile humor, and I don't really find anything. I mean, it's just like it's it's all just punchlines, really. I don't know. Like, there's nothing like interesting about it. Like Snatch and Lockstock. I mean, I. I don't know. They're just, they're really boring to me. Okay. What about, um, I'll just say both of them. The, uh, the departed and infernal affairs. You know, I didn't really think of infernal affairs cause I guess I really kind of just was thinking about American crime mm, movies right. for some reason. Um, I mean, I think the departed is, is good, but it's not better than any of the movies that are on this list. Okay. The only thing that I didn't put on there that I really considered a lot because I like it a lot is Drive. 
Okay, um, that's one of the ones I was going to ask you about. I, I I went back and forth on that, but like I I don't know how to describe like the feeling behind why I didn't put it on there. I think just like Ryan Gosling just feels so like morose in that. I don't know. I can't explain it. It's a good movie. I really like Drive a lot, but I like all five of these movies better. I think. Okay. What about um? Well, you've already said that you were thinking about American movies more than anything. What, City of God. Ooh, yeah. I don't know. I don't ever think of that as a crime movie. Although I guess it is. Hmm. Okay. Um. What about I? Actually, I don't know. I have a feeling you're going to react badly to this. How do you feel about like all those movies, like um, Mystic River, Gone Girl, and all that kind of stuff, like that? Uh, Mystic River is a real shitty movie with a couple of decent performances. Um, because they all feel like the same. Gone movie. Girl or Gone Baby Gone? I, I would say all all that. Uh, it all feels very like northeastern. Gone Baby Gone is decent, but it's kind of hokey. Mm-hmm. Like it's just. I don't know that it holds up on multiple viewings, like, once you know the twist. Mm-hmm. I've never seen Gone Girl, so I can't really comment on that. I haven't watched, except for Mystic River, I haven't watched any of those, but they all feel like, if they're not Dennis Lane, like, novels that they should be. Right. Um, <clears throat> I mean, Mystic River suffers from some overacting, and it's just way too long. But It's got some decent stuff in it, and I don't know. That's more like of a psychological thriller to me, too, than like a crime movie. Mm. I think. Well, crime is just a really broad category. I mean. <clears throat> right. I mean, just how I define yeah, it. Right. Sure. Internally. Right. What about in Bruges? Yeah. Like, I don't really think of that as a crime movie. I don't. Yeah. I mean, I know it's about criminals and stuff, but that's right. like a. Those movies. There's another one that's like that. Um. Like assassins tracking assassins. I, I don't know. Like it's not. I guess maybe when I was thinking of it, I was connecting it more to like the idea of like modern noir than modern right, crime, yeah. and maybe that's where the list came from. I I, I think In Bruges is a fantastic movie, hmm. but um, it's also kind of it's more of like a comedy. I think in a lot of ways. Yes, I know it's not really, absolutely. Yeah, there's a lot of comedic elements in that. Like, to me, that's like a genre-bending movie, whereas, mm-hmm. like, all five of the movies on this list are, in my opinion, pretty firmly planted in, like, being about crime. Hmm. That's interesting. So Even one though of them, one of them could be argued as, Right, like, I was going to say, one of them could be Majority argued. comedy. Right. Um, okay, I'll just ask you one more. Uh, just the movie that I've been uh, pimping for, like, pri- privately among friends, like, for months now to re- re-examine as a uh, collateral. Yeah, I don't really care about collateral. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I still argue that it's, besides Magnolia, I think it's Cruz's best performance. I had the opportunity to watch Collateral again the other day, and I was, I looked at it for like five minutes and thought, man, do I want to watch this movie again? Mm-hmm. And I didn't. Are you going to watch the new Jimmy Fox movie? That Jamie we saw Fox? The tra- yeah, yeah, that we saw the trailer for today. He's the inmate. Michael B. Jordan is a lawyer uh, trying to get people off death row. I don't know. That, seems... that was the one that had the scene where, like, somebody's in the woods staring up at those trees at the sky because that shot hasn't been done. It seems kind of five million times. 
What's that? It seems kind of heavy handed to me. I don't know. Yeah, it, it seemed very heavy handed to me. Yeah. I was um, <laughs> I was not in any of the trailers. I don't think. No, all those we, trailers. We yeah. saw it chapter two today, so just right. for context. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> well, I'd like to talk about that at some point. Actually, like both of those movies now that they're out, like maybe in a couple weeks. That's fine. Give me some time to forget about the second one. <laughs> okay. Somewhere. So, um, before we jump in, I just wanted to say that. After uh, tonight, for the rest of September and October, we're going to be jumping into Harless of one sort or another. Um, we'll be doing ni- the B-Har movies in 1988, and uh, Frank's going to go through Netflix and Amazon horror movies and recommend them in September as we go into October. And I know that... Um, I mean, I can tell from our downloads that like horror isn't necessarily as popular um, as some some other episodes and other genres. Um, but I do want to say that the first episode in October is going to be a top five psychological horror movies. And I think even people that aren't into necessarily like slasher or horror or anything like that, I think that's still definitely an episode to check out regardless. Um, and then we're also going to be doing a first watch with our friend Mike Bledsoe. Um, of Halloween because he's never seen it before the original Halloween and then we'll be wrapping up that month um, with the 1989 B horror movies and then I think we agree that we're going to be done with horror for a while I think. yeah I, I don't know that I have anything <clears throat> left to say about no you still have stuff I to do. say about horror it's but, true um, <laughs> but we'll, we'll take a break for a while but I would like to go into some older stuff uh, yeah. if when we do horror next time like, okay <clears throat> and some modern stuff um, to a little bit more uh, 70s and like recent stuff so uh, that's what we have coming up uh, for the next month and a half um, as always if anybody has list ideas because we're already plotting out 2020 right is that right yeah, that's yep. right okay um, 2020 and uh, we have you know probably like you know at least uh, 16 episodes like planned out already but we still have a lot, bunch of things open, so if anybody has any ideas for us, please um, please let us know uh, through Facebook uh, or emailing us at twoguys5movies at gmail.com. All right, you ready to start, Frank? I am ready. All right. So number five on your list is 2006 movie Brick, directed by Ryan Johnson, starring Joseph Gordon-Levitt, Lucas Haas, Noah Fleiss, Nora Zetner, and uh, Emily DeRaven. Has a 79% from critics on Rotten Tomatoes and an 86 from audiences. Want to tell us a little bit about this movie and what you like about it so much? Uh, so it basically follows um, Joseph Gordon-Levitt's character, uh, Brendan, over the course of several days who's trying to figure out, um, well, basically who murdered his ex-girlfriend, uh, but jumps in time a little bit um, where she was in trouble and she went to him for help, but he couldn't help her and then trying to unravel like why she died um set in a california high school um so it's it's an interesting film in like just from that perspective alone just because it's about um using like the language of traditional noir so it it feels very much like you're reading like Dashiell Hammett or something, mm-hmm. um, but coming out of the mouths of teenage kids and plays on the idea of like cliques and factions and 
who you eat lunch with and stuff. And it kind of takes the place of, you know, the traditional like noir tropes of you have like the gangsters and the people that work at like a speakeasy and like the showgirls and there's all these. The the preps are like the rich people. Yeah. Yeah. There's the wealthy people. There's the drama people. There's the stoners who hang up behind the pie shop. Right. Um, then there's this guy who's like almost an urban legend. That's an older, like still a young kid, like 26 years old, but who's the regional kingpin that, you know, moves all the drugs around. Um, it's a pretty, pretty complex story. It, it's very much in the vein of Red Harvest, um, sort of, if you've ever, like, read that, you know, where this hard-boiled detective, this guy who's, like, kind of world-weary and has a smart mouth, but's also, like, sort of more savvy than everybody else is going around and trying to solve these crimes and... They use the administration of the school as kind of like the de facto police force. Right. And, yeah. Um, it's... The first time you watch it, it's it's very... It unfolds very well. And it keeps you interested and it keeps you guessing. And it's got a lot of really, really tense scenes. I mean, I guess it sort of pulls off of like the... Um, kind of like the man with no name stuff from Clint Eastwood, like the stuff that inspired that with him like just getting like beat down a bunch and you know he's not like he can hold his own in a fight but he's not like the toughest guy or anything and yeah it's it's the grit and determination to get back up and keep moving is is the thing and it's very it's a very noir detective type thing um language is very stylized dialogue is very snappy which i i like i i kind of like vacillate on that sometimes because I find it to be really clever and I really enjoy it, but at the same time, I can also see where it's it's tiresome at times. Kind of like, um, you watch something like the Gilmore Girls and like, it's just when every line is like so perfect that mm-hmm. it almost like takes the beauty out of like the really great lines, like, because every line just like is exactly what it should be. Yeah, I think it depends. I. I think it can draw you into that world much more sure. though because of that. Again, I think the first time you see this movie, if you've yeah. never seen it, it definitely draws you in and it definitely builds <clears throat> it builds a like it makes their world like a character almost that it, it almost like allows um Johnson to like kind of eschew some character development because mm-hmm. so much is told just through the way these people talk and the way that they refer to things and the way they interact with each other, where you don't need a whole lot of exposition to find out who the person is. You can just kind of like listen to their dialogue. Right. And even though everybody has snappy dialogue, it's all to degrees. So tug who's the muscle enforcer for, for the pin still has really well-crafted dialogue, but it's at like a much almost like statico (laughs) delivery and very like terse. And the pin has, like, kind of a, like, a dreamy, like, lilt to the way he talks. And then even, like, they bring this thing where they're on the beach, him and um, uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt's character. And the pin starts talking about how Tolkien, right, like, yeah. he loves reading Tolkien. You ever read Tolkien? To, yeah, he wants yeah. to go to that world. Right. He, he's really good at describing things is the way he says it. And it's yeah. like, 
this guy that's supposed to be like super smart, just using this really base language to yeah, really good at describe, really right. good at describing. Well, it's a, it's, and it's a, and it's a send up a little bit of like a common noir type thing where it's like you know you're you're with the criminal and you're trying to show that the criminal is actually well educated and. Um, you know, actually like is cultured to some degree and I, I'll just make something up, but it's like they would ask in the old noirs, it'd be something like, you know, I don't you ever read Tennyson, you right, know, right. and, but it's like here it's, it's Tolkien, um, <clears throat> which is, is a funny joke, but also like, you know, still fitting in with that yeah. noir theme. Um, does good, does a good job of having like the femme fatale characters and the heavies and, mm-hmm. um, introduces this subplot where somebody tries to stab joseph gordon levitt's character and he thinks it's thinks it's the pin setting up so he becomes paranoid but then like it's almost it's it's a red herring that's just kind of explained away in like the last like couple lines of dialogue of the movie yeah um but it it's it comes back everything like wraps in on itself it's very yeah i don't want to say it's tied up neatly because like all like really great noir <clears throat> like it's still a mess at the end like sure. no one yeah. No one comes out clean from the end of it. And that's even like yeah. one of the early in the movie, one of, um, you know, every time I go to say Joseph Gordon-Levitt's name, I have to pause and think what his name is. <laughs> and I've come so close to saying um, Nicholas Wending Reefen or whatever that guy's oh, name is. right. Because okay. it's just the three names. And yeah, I can't right, remember uh-huh. Joseph Gordon-Levitt. But um, he says earlier, you know, like, you might want to get away from me. This is going to get messy. And he yeah. like tries to warn people off. Um, and it's just, it's, it's amazing because it's just set against the backdrop of like, you know, he's skipping class. They're talking about where they eat lunch. It's like right. they go to drama club and people are like mm-hmm. rehearsing on stage and these larger than life noir figures like placed in this world. It's, um, we never talked about this, but why do you think, so Johnson does it in this movie. And then right around this time, you also have Veronica Mars, which is pretty successful in a cult way during that same time period of being having these noirish elements inside a high school in a more, I think, I don't know, I want to say realistic, but a slightly more realistic way than this, where it's like, it's very stylized sure. where that's a little bit more realistic, realistic dialogue and stuff like that. Like, do, do you think that there's like, what do you think it is about that time period? Like 15 years ago where, I mean, Johnson was, just like becoming a director at this right point. this is first movie right um yeah and it was yeah. apparently it was something yeah it's first movie so yeah. something that he had thought about for years like yeah. he had written it in film school mm-hmm. i think and had tried to shop it for a while right. um i don't know i mean i think that i think high school is always an appealing setting for stuff mm-hmm. you know like you can look at the late 90s for stuff like um 10 Things I Hate About You and stuff like, you know, and the Romeo and Juliet remake, like, why do you take Shakespeare to high school? Just because mm-hmm. it's relatable and it's really cheap to film things mm-hmm. in, like, a high school setting because there's so many sets, like, just natural, like, locations that mm-hmm. exist. Um, yeah. And I think that it's... I think that at a certain point, especially with stuff like noir, you have to look at what's another way that I can present this because otherwise you're kind of just being derivative of sure. hundreds of movies that came Absolutely. before. Yeah. And you're really telling, I mean, ultimately the story of like the fallen, fallen lady, you know, who dies or is in trouble and mm-hmm. like the gallant, but downtrodden detective that tries yeah. to find her. I mean, they're all like, it's pretty well-worn. Right. 
you know, well-worn subject matter. Yeah. So Right. I mean, because, uh, and it's still like, I mean, right. Because this movie, like, fits, like, every character fits, like, an old noir stereotype. Yeah. I mean, he obviously was in with, like, the rich people at one point much more than he is now. Like, he's, like, he's that detective that used to be. Right you know um like friends with them and then is like now like this kind of bitter um hardened now pi or like you know i mean he's sam spade or whoever you know sure yeah right absolutely yeah but it's like but then tug is like um but it's like really like the moose molloy character right uh, from um pharaoh my lovely like it's very similar in the tough the dumb tough guy but he's actually not as dumb as you think he is right it also gives because it's about He's doing it because he loves this girl that's, right. that's died. Yeah. It, it presents it in a way that's a little more believable because it's these teenage emotions. It's mm-hmm. not like a fully, like a full grown adult, like making these decisions to risk their life to avenge this woman's death. It's like a, a kid mm-hmm. who's just too smart for his own good in a lot of ways and right. is recognized as such. And, you know, just because this is the girl that he loves and she may have been, well, he doesn't even know that till the end that she may have been pregnant with this kid, but, um, what do you think, what do you think of the best, some of the best scenes in this? Yeah. The, um, I love the scene in, uh, the vice principal's office yeah. where he says, um, like he's talking about how he gave up his former drug running partner. Mm-hmm. Um, and he says, I gave him to be eaten. I didn't, I, I gave, I, I did it to watch him be eaten. I didn't do it to watch you feed. Yeah. yeah. And it's just a great oh, line. Yeah, it is. Really, really snappy. Really yeah. um, any interaction that he has with uh, Kara, his former girlfriend that's mm-hmm. in drama club, is all really well done. And mm-hmm. um, that's Megan Good is plays that character. She does yeah. an amazing job. Um, the scene where he's standing in front of the pin for the first time and basically says, you know, like, what do you have to offer? And he says, well, I'll tell you what I can offer the police is that I can tell them that you live at this house on this drive and uh-huh. you have this drug running operation in your basement. Yeah. And that really stylized stuff, like the very old noir type stuff where it's like the, like the, the blackout, like yeah. where he's attacked and like hit in the back of the head by tug. And it's so <clears throat> I, I like that stuff. Um, Johnson's a little too stylistic at times, especially. Um, so. The basement scenes um, in the pins, like, lair or whatever, were filmed in a separate location from the upstairs portion. Mm-hmm. Like, that house is not where they filmed that basement. Right. So, stuff like where they show the... It almost reminds me of, like, the beginning of, like, an episode of The Real World or something, where he's going down the stairs and it's kind of like a shaky, mm-hmm. out-of-focus cam on, like, these concrete steps. And there's just certain times... I understand that he's really trying to, like, pay homage to noir with like the way he uses shadow and the way he Mm -hmm. like films things but you can also tell that he's not like a super experienced director at that point you know because there are some small elements like that that just kind of feel like a little too art schooly yeah i really like going to the first person in that scene though like where it's like the the camera kind of like falls with him and like the black right going black and everything sure some of that stuff really good but then like it's to me that that's good when it's done once in a movie to really illustrate like Mm -hmm. his like collapse like because he's been like beaten so much right but it happens like five it does yeah it goes the first person too much i mean i granted your point about johnson like who i really like a lot despite like all like the hatred of him now with the star wars stuff Mm -hmm. but um 
But that there's stuff in the. Uh, do you remember that episode, The Fly, in um, Breaking Bad? The one where Walter White's yeah, like uh-huh. on, uh, Johnson directs that, right. and I don't know if you remember that, but it, like he goes really wild in that right. episode at times, and it's like a little too much. And I think there's some elements here. I think Brian Johnson directed the episode that I hate, where um, not hate, but the because there's no episode of Breaking Bad that I hate, but where Walt buys him and Walt Junior cars, and it's doing the ridiculous thing. I think where you might be like right. Yeah, flipping back and forth between them, like. With their mouths agape, like, rocking out at the uh-huh. wheels of their, like, new rides. And uh-huh. it's just so embarrassing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I, so, Brick is... The first time you watch it, you'll... If you like crime movies, I think the first time you watch Brick, you'll love it. And this was something that was, like... I, I think I think I bought it just randomly at, like, when we were going to, like, Best Buy and Borders every Monday. Or Walmart. Yeah, I had just seen, like, I, I think I would seen some blurb on Any Cool News about yeah. it and just picked it up. And I knew nothing about it. I didn't see it in the theater. And it yeah. was, like... And then I think he brought it over to Chuck's house. And yeah, made, I made me you and guys Chuck, watch yeah, it, like, the next day. It. Yeah, right. Or, like, soon after. Yeah, it was, like, within a couple of days. Because yeah. it was just mind-blowing to right. see yeah. that movie for the first uh-huh. time. Because I didn't know Joseph Gordon-Levitt at all. And yeah. yeah like I just none knew of those, him from, like, Third Rock from the Sun or whatever. Is like I didn't kid. even... Like, I had never... Um, watch like I yeah I didn't know anything about him and mm-hmm. like to see him then become like an actually like, pretty well respected actor and like a big star is, is mm-hmm. pretty cool but it's just one of those fun movies that like like really cool like you, like you find it and it feels like it's your own thing and mm-hmm. I, I guess it's kind of got a cult following to it but I don't really know a whole lot of people that when you bring it up like oh yeah like I've seen that movie so mm-hmm. definitely something I think that more people should see and that I think people would enjoy if they watched it um, you kind of already mentioned like the idea that these characters are maybe a little bit one dimensional at times and you kind of address like how you think that the the setting kind of like allows for that. Right. Um, so I, I won't bring this up. The one the one I do want to bring up here is uh, Jack Matthews from the New York Daily News calls it an A plus film school exercise with zero emotional or social impact. Mm. Do you see any credence to that in terms of like of lacking emotional impact or lacking social impact one both or neither i think it has emotional impact i mean i think the only there's really four characters in the movie that it asks you to truly become like invested in and that's brendan you know the main character Mm -hmm. um the pin and tug Right. Alternately. And then, um, what's her name? The, uh, I can't remember the, the actress's fatale. name. Yeah, the femme fatale character. The, the one that's killed or the one that's... No, no, the one that's... Yeah. The one that's killed is just a plot device sure. to get you to invest right. in Joseph Gordon-Levitt. I mean... Right, yeah. I, he never yeah, really I can, invested in I can't in remember her. what the character's name is, yeah. Um, Nor is the Hetner is yeah. the actress. So, yeah. those are the only four, because everybody else is basically just like... A plot device to move everything along. Right. Um, but I think that at the end you feel for for Brendan. You know, I think that you've like come to appreciate his savvy and his dedication. Mm-hmm. And basically the fact that he did everything because he loved this woman. Even if she might not have loved him back like, you know, at the time. Um, social impact? Like, I don't know. Like, not everything's going to have like some kind of societal impact to it. Yeah, and I—I I mean, I don't know if noir itself had 
an extreme right. amount of societal impact other than an attitude or a mood about the world in terms of just the cynical look at it, you know? Right. Like, there, there, there's crime mm. movies... Um, there's crime movies that are definitely about real crime that are meant to, like, make you look at the way that, like, crime and law enforcement or whatever work, sure. like, in the mm. real world. And this is not that movie. This is a hyper-stylized... You know, noir piece. Yeah, like, n- noir, at the end of it, it's like you're supposed to realize how fucked the world is. Like, that's really right. every noir movie, and I think that does its right, job it's, here. It's, it's mm. existential, so right, I don't yeah. know. I mean, I, I I guess, like, I agree, but it's a yeah, silly claim. But I, but I think it's a silly claim, like, right. in in the sense of, like, that, that's what noir kind of does. I mean, and... Yeah. Know. I mean, not every movie has to be, like, quote-unquote important. Right. You know, like, movies can just be entertaining sometimes. I think it's much better than an A plus film school exercise too. I think it's like much better I agree with than that. that. I mean, it's it's a legit, fully realized feature film. I mean, it's and better than most things of its ilk from around the same time. Absolutely. Yeah. You brought up Veronica yeah. Mars. It does more in an hour and a half than Veronica Mars did in like two seasons. So. Right. Yeah. 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 I agree. Yeah. Um, and I like Veronica Mars. Like no. Right. Yeah. No diss on on that show. Okay, so number four on your list is the 1997 Curtis Hansen film, L.A. Confidential, starring Guy Pearce, Russell Crowe, Kevin Spacey, Kim Basinger, James Cromwell, uh, Danny DeVito. I could probably go on and on. It is a 99% from critics on Rotten Tomatoes and a 94% from audiences. You want to tell us a little bit about this movie and what you like about it so much? Uh, difficult plot to distill. Yeah, it really like is. like a blurb. Um basically follows the working lives of three uh la-based police officers um ed exley uh bud white and vincennes right jack vincennes jack vincennes Mm -hmm. um that's pierce is exley uh crow is white and kevin spacey is vincennes um there's murders that take place at this all-night cafe uh, the night owl, um, the murders are pinned on these, uh, black kids, um, Exley, who's this hungry, ambitious, like up and coming, but like incredibly moralistic detective, um, is credited with solving the murders because he like tracks the kids and then they all end up dying in like a shootout and he becomes a hero, but it doesn't sit right with him because he doesn't feel like it was actually solved. Um, so him and Vincennes start kind of investigating it. At the same time, White has developed this relationship with a call girl, uh, played by um, Kim Basinger. Uh, Kim Basinger, sorry, I almost said Michelle Pfeiffer, and I was like, no, no, not <laughs> Michelle Pfeiffer. Right. Um, Kim Basinger, who's cut to look like Lana Turner. She works for a, a high class pimp who basically has plastic surgery performed on women. So they look. Veronica like, Lake. Veronica Lake, you're right. Yeah. What did I say? Lana Turner. Oh right. Lana Turner's that joke later on. Right, right. Because it is Lana Turner. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, Veronica Lee, yeah. Um, he cuts his prostitutes to look like famous actresses um, and then, like, whatever, rents them out. I don't know what you would say to a prostitute. Well, pimps them out <laughs> to uh, rich people in Hollywood. Um, it turns out into a very convoluted mess where really... Uh, Cromwell is the police commissioner is involved in these crimes um, to try and take over from 
uh, Mickey Cohen, who's gone to jail. Um, they're using the police force to kind of like muscle into the drug trade and, um, Pierre, uh, Exley and White are the ones that like basically solve it and bring down like the corrupt machine of the police force or whatever. So congratulations. That's really good. (laughs) That just told it pretty well. It was difficult to do. Right. (laughs) Uh, yeah. I mean, this is an extremely complex movie. Uh, uh, Oddly complex because it's so complex for like 75% of it. And then it's just like boom, 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 boom. Mm -hmm. And then the movie's over, kind of. Even though all that stuff like has complexity to it. It's like Mm -hmm. once it starts, once they tell you, I guess the quote unquote, once you see the quote unquote twist and like you realize what's happening. Yeah. And it starts to unravel, like it unravels very fast. Right. The Roland Mossy scene. Like once that like happens like you know yeah that's some great dialogue it really is um based on a james elroy novel Mm -hmm. um, of the same name that's like seven million pages long so (laughs) yeah it's like 700 pages and it has probably quadruple the amount of characters that this movie does uh maybe more than that even and um is even more complex than this movie is um so the movie itself kind of distills right the novel pretty well. I think it's a good adaptation overall. Even um, they changed some stuff. Some really great performances. Uh, every it's difficult in the modern like. So I saw this movie when it first came out. Um, I think either in the theater or when it first came out on DVD. I can't remember if I saw it in the theater or not. But really blown away by it. Like amazed by how tightly it was plotted and how well it was acted. Um, I. Don't know if I've watched it since. Hmm. Maybe, like, I watched it on DVD once, but it's been a really long time since I've seen it before this past week. Um, Difficult and kind of weird to watch people like Russell Crowe and Kevin Spacey now. Um, Also really difficult for me to watch Danny DeVito and not think of uh, um, Frank from Always Sunny in Philadelphia. (laughs) Like, I'm just watching him the whole time, like, picturing him, like, crawling naked out of a, like a leather couch. <laughs> right, right. Um, you know, Basinger is really good in it. Um, all the small, all the small bits, like the guy that plays the pimp is really good. Um, the guy that plays White's yeah. partner that gets fired is really good. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. Just it's, it does one of the things that I love. No, I'm not a huge fan of Curtis Hanson. Like he's okay, but that's one of the things I love about period films set in the Los Angeles, like the Valley area in that, like it, it looks hot and hazy and, but you know, sunny and inviting, but Mm. also like there's a darkness to that, like sunniness and Mm. just really well filmed. Um, pretty tense and exciting climax to it. Like, especially with like the, like the the ultimate like gunfight before like the falling action. That's a really good gunfight. Like yeah, I, really I well forgot done. how good that is. Well done in a way where you also it's not like like after John Woo became popular in the mid nineties, especially like once Tarantino really started like hyping him. Mm-hmm. You'd see so many movies where the gunfights would be like some guy like jumping sideways and shooting two guns at once and like doing some acrobatics and stuff. And this feels realistic yeah like just two guys who are really well trained at using their weapons like fighting off and getting lucky a lot of the times and 
being able to succeed. And also like one of the, one of the best moments in the movie is, um, so Cromwell who plays Cromwell, who's fantastic in it too. Yes. Um, who plays the corrupt, uh, he's a captain. He's not a commissioner, right? He's captain. Yeah. Captain, um, captain Dudley Smith. Yeah. Has been chiding Exley the whole time that Exley doesn't have what it takes to be a detective because he's not willing to plan evidence. He's not right. willing to beat a confession and he's not willing to shoot a guilty man in the back, even if he knows he's guilty. And so Cromwell's playing off that at the end and is like going to surrender himself to the police and is like, we'll both get out of this and actually shoots him in the back, you know, and finally like has the balls to do it in the one moment when it's, when it's right. But it's just, um, yeah, you know, again, there's, there, there's so many like minor plot elements that really weave together seamlessly, um, that it's difficult to like talk about a lot of like the smaller scenes that are really great. There's one scene that you and I have talked about this, like after I watched it again, um, it's an interrogation by Exley mm. of the initial night owl murder suspects when they come in. And it's just, it's just so brilliantly shot and paced and yeah. Guy Pierce does an amazing job just like with his performance and his intensity and, mm-hmm. and then the, the, the work by Hanson too of uh, and and the editor of cutting back and forth right as uh, to to both of those rooms and like Exley's like you said like you know Guy Pierce's like just energy going from one room to another, um, and uh and then like the repetition of like the the one character who's like completely broken saying over and over she don't <coughs> die so I don't die she don't right. die so I don't die. Right. And you see him like completely broken, and that whole time, like he just keeps going back to Bud White's face as he's listening to it, because Bud has that. Uh, oh, he's all ultra protective of women, right? Like any anybody that's a woman beater is like you know he'll just you know yeah make sure that they're in jail or beat the hell out of them, right? Um, but yeah, it all like leading up to that snap of that chair <clears throat> where he like snaps the chair with his bare hands. Yeah. That's that's a really good scene. That is really good. Russell Crowe is fantastic in it. Oh, yeah. Um, With his, like, sleepy, sexy look that he's got Mm -hmm. going on. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, So, a couple things that... I'm not going to say I don't like them, but... I found... I don't even know if they detracted, but, like, I noticed them watching Mm -hmm. it this time. Um... I hate to say this, but I think there's almost a little too much, like, of a romance element to it. Especially with, like, the sort of triangle between Bud, Ed, and um, the Kim Basinger character. Yeah. And I, I, it's hard to explain, but it's like the Ed Exley, like, passionately taking her in his arms. And I know that it's a setup, and I know, like, I understand, like, the plot of it. But I don't know. Just, like, I kind of rolled my eyes watching that scene. And I just feel like... Yeah, I don't think they delve into, like, the actual psychology of it enough besides a line. Right. Like, it's, you know, the, the I mean, the idea, and it's, it's it's done much better when you have pages to do it, sure. is, the, is the idea that he hates Bud White so much that he thinks he can, it's like he wants to fuck Bud White over because he can't beat him in a fight. Right. So... He's going to like have sex with the woman that like and he's they, in love with. They him. they present it like that somewhat in in one line. Yeah, I mean they but, just kind of gloss over which I think she says that like you know fucking me and but fucking me and fucking butt aren't the same thing. Or right. Something, yeah. 
So it's acknowledged, but but it's just like you've you've built Exley up so much as being the moralistic mm-hmm. backbone of the LAPD, right? And then in one second, like he switches to something entirely different, yeah. and it's the same thing. My same complaint with the end of the movie, and again, compressing a huge novel into a two-hour film. And doing it in a way that like still maintains the entire spirit and beats of the novel is an incredible feat. Mm-hmm. But like you get to that last 25 minutes where Exley and Bud agree to work with each other. And it's just serious. It's just like bang, 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 bang. And then it's over. Yeah. And they, you know, throw police procedure out the window. They're like assaulting a district attorney to like... Right. You know, no comeuppance. Which is stuff. great stuff, though. I Look, mean, like those scenes fantastic are... Fantastic scene. Right, yeah, it's just... Yeah. For as much, like, effort is put into crafting the beginning of that movie to get you to that point, it just feels, like, very much like, oh, my God, right, we got to yeah. get through, we got to get through right, this, yeah. we can't go over two hours, and then they just, just push to the end. But, yeah. um... Do you think it's a movie that actually could add 15 minutes on to it and be I mean, I'd stronger? Like, I, I think, like, 25 minutes, honestly. Yeah. Like, I think there's a lot of exposition, mm-hmm. a lot of minor scenes to, like, talk about Exley's psychology or yeah. even, like... Bud, you know, like more stuff with him. It's just mm-hmm. there's so much more that could be done. I think to yeah, because the Exley has like a whole subplot with his father and the rape survivor from the um, supposed night out murder. Right, like that's in that book that really explores like his ambition and also like kind of the bad decisions he makes when it comes to female. Sometimes sure. So, but I mean, overall, it's 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 a beautiful movie. It's Really well directed, really well acted. Um, the script is amazing. Um, definitely like a, a classic of of modern modern noir, I think. And yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, the... pretty much every actor nails what they're doing. Oh yes, yeah. and yeah, yeah. Uh, th- I texted you. I think it, I think I texted we maybe I, we talked about. It, I don't know, but it, I thought that watching it was a really weird experience again because at times it's almost like I thought this is too well crafted. Right, it does feel like that. Like, it's almost because it's like everything works together. Like, all the puzzle pieces work together so well. It's almost like there's no red herrings, almost. There's no MacGuffins. There's no messiness to it. Like, in hindsight, you know, like, when you know what's coming, it's like watching it again. It's almost like it's too perfectly crafted. Well, it's because it doesn't hold anything back from you as a viewer. Like, whereas Brick, you don't really find out what really happened to Brick until... Joseph Gordon-Levitt basically explains it to you at the end. And you can intuit a lot of that stuff and, like, Mm. put it together. But it still is him, like, explaining, like, everything you saw and how it works. In this, like, I mean, you see Dudley Smith shoot Vincennes halfway into the movie, basically. Or, like, 60% away in the movie. And at that point, you're already complicit in knowing, like, who the criminals are. So, yeah, it was really sad what I thought watching... Like, the way I felt watching Kevin Spacey. I agree. Because Kevin Spacey's really good in this. He is. Like, it's, like, one of those few roles that he's had in his life that it's, like, he's, like, was just built for. And, um, yeah, it's really a shame uh, watching him in this. Yeah, it is too bad. What do you think about, you know that there's they're doing a television show based on this? Oh, uh, no, I didn't know I think that. it's FX or FXX or some, something about somebody's doing it. That's um, interesting. But uh, Walt Goggins is playing Jack Vincennes. Oh, that's that's actually like isn't amazing. Per- yes, yeah. isn't that perfect? Yeah. yeah. Um, 
Yeah, apparently it's gonna like follow like the act. It's not like gonna like veer off too much. It's gonna like actually follow the events of like the novel and stuff like that. That's really cool. And I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing. That. Yeah, yeah, it'll be interesting to see what's what's done with it. Any final thoughts on this? No, I mean I think that I think a lot of people have probably seen LA Confidential. If you haven't, I think it's definitely worth yeah. a couple hour investment of your life. Yep. Okay, so number three on your list is Kiss Kiss Bang Bang from 2005. It's directed by Shane Black, starring Robert Downey Jr., Val Kilmer, Michelle Moynihan, and Corbin Burnson. It has an 85% from critics on Rotten Tomatoes and an 87% from audiences. Want to tell us a little bit about the movie and what you like about it so much? Uh, Downey Jr. plays a thief who's quote-unquote discovered um, (laughs) by a casting agent while fleeing from the cops in New York. Um, Told in a first-person narrative from his perspective after the events of the movie um, in a really, like, I don't even know, like, fractured time way of, like, because he's taught, it's it's very conversational the way that he's narrating it to you, so they jump between, like, things happening and he goes back and talks about something he forgot to tell you about. Um, but basically, he's paired up with, um, Val Kilmer's character, Gay Gay Perry, uh, who's a private investigator to kind of learn the ropes of like being a private investigator in L.A., um, reconnects with his childhood love, uh, the Michelle Monaghan character, um, and they witness a murder, him and Gay Perry. Um, and then it's, you know, initially him pretending to be a private investigator to sort of get in her pants and then really becoming invested in trying to solve the crime. Then she becomes invested in trying to solve the crime, and um, they eventually do. You know, they, there's a lot of misadventures in there, but they figure out um, the criminal activities that are happening. And it's um, it's an incredibly funny movie. Uh, there's scenes where this is another one that was just like random happenstance that I bought this while we were out one day, mm-hmm. um, and was like completely like shocked by how good it was. Um, scenes that made me laugh out loud, like legitimately the first time I saw him and still make me laugh when I see him now, him, him pissing on the corpse in the bathroom is like literally one of the best sight gags I've seen in like 20 years. Um, it's got a really nice, like loose noir feel to it because it is so almost like madcap and zany in the way that like it jumps back and forth and him just like being an eternal fuck up and her being an eternal fuck up and Val Kilmer like consistently being pissed that he's saddled with these fuck ups. Um, I think it plays out the, the mystery element in a really nice way um, where it does never bog down the main story of like you kind of learning about these people as people, um, but still makes it interesting to see, you know, who the bad guy, like, who the bad guy is, what his motivation is, see how, like, the good guys get out of it. Um, really snappy dialogue, really good, tight direction by Black. Um, getting fantastic performances by Kilmer and Downey Jr. Mm-hmm. Um, both, they, they play off each other so well. Um, you can see why, like, it's, it's, it's nice to see Downey Jr. Here, like young and pre Iron Man, and just really into the role and mm-hmm. kind of doing his best to just be that sort of like snappy, smarmy, 
cocksure, you know, guy that still is an idiot, which Downey plays really well. Um, another movie set in Los Angeles, so, you know, you get, like, the beautiful backdrop of L.A., um, a lot of really good scenes on, like, rooftops and in parks and... Yeah, and this is much more Chandler-inspired than Hammett. Right, right. Yeah, this is, I don't know, the fucking Thin Man and his wife more than it is, like, I don't know. Yeah, this is, I mean, all all the chapters are based off of, like, Chandler titles, which makes it pretty obvious, but... And it has a really <sighs> cool plot device where... I think, uh, what uh, I guess what I mean by that is, I, I think that uh, Chandler, Chandler's funnier than Hammond is. Right, agreed. Like, like he has more of a wry wit, which lead, like fits in with this movie perfectly. Right, Hammond, Hammond is punching you in the face right. when you read it. Yeah, right. Um, really amazing subplot where um, the Michelle Monaghan character was obsessed as a child with these um, dime store detective novels called Johnny the Johnny Gossamer series. Yeah. And... She's basically, like, still trying to live out her fantasy of, like, one day meeting her Johnny Gossamer and um, Downey Jr. kind of, like, plays into that a little. I don't know. It's 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 really well done. Yeah. Really funny. Um, yeah. Lots of really funny scenes. Like, uh, the the scene, the Russian roulette scene with Val right. Kilmer asking Downey Jr. who taught you math. When he's trying to explain right, he, how he thought Russian roulette worked, puts, like the he puts, odds. He puts one bullet in and he's like, it's only a one-eighth chance. Right. <laughs> yeah. And then he tries to do the math to support himself. And right. Yeah, it's, 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 it's really, really good banter between the two of them. And and um, between Downey and uh Yeah, there's, a, there's really great like, chemistry there. Yeah. There it really also is. helps that she just is... I, I wonder if that, like... Do you have any criticism of this from critics? Because it feels like that might be like a complaint from somebody that she kind of comes across as that um, dream girl next door style. Mm-hmm. Like, no, that's not mentioned. I ha- I have Ebert here talking about it, <laughs> but um, did you want to hear that? Yeah, I'd like to hear it. He says that uh, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang contains a lot of comedy and invention, but doesn't much benefit from its clever style. The characters and plots are so promising that maybe Black should have backed off and told the story deadpan instead of mugging so shamelessly for laughs. It could still be a comedy, but it wouldn't be digging its elbow into our ribs. I kept wanting to add my own subtitles. I get it, I get it. I've seen the movie twice, foolishly thinking I might understand it better the second time. Understanding is not the point. The dialogue exists not to explain anything or advance the story. It exists entirely in order to be dialogue. When the characters speak, it is an example of their verbal style, which is half film noir, half smartass. The dialogue, and just about everything else in the movie, is there for its own sake. Like a smorgasbord, it makes no attempts at coherence. Put a little of everything on your plate and you'll be stuffed at the end, but what did you eat? I don't know. I like Downey's pose that he was writing the movie as he was living it and Kilmer's gay detective who functions as a parody of gay parodies. But I did I need to see it twice? Not really. Do you need to see it once? Not exactly. That's weird. I don't I don't agree. That was him writing that? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I I think it works really well as a comedy about criminals basically sure i mean downey jr is a criminal uh, yeah and it's like there is a parody of it, film noir here that's right. going on like that's like it's not supposed to be 
I, th- I think it wants to be a parody to some degree. But it's a loving parody and not a yes. side parody. Ag- agreed. Right. Right. Yeah, and it, and it modernizes it really well. You were texting me about that, I think. Like, yes. About how well it modernizes the noir Almost movie. perfectly, where it takes it and, like... Whereas Brick modernizes it from a setting perspective, but keeps it, like, completely almost archaic from, a like, an actual plot and dialogue perspective. Mm-hmm. Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, like, feels reverential, but also fresh. Like, it's not precious yeah. about its its roots yeah. it's like i think it makes look la la look really good compared to a lot of movies right i agree um i i really like the look of la in this movie like the world that they've created poor uh poor robert Downey jr is the most abused man oh sorry losing a finger and getting the shit beat out of him yeah. and yeah like uh he just yeah i i, I hope that someday that uh I know they talk about it off and on, but with Kilmer's health issues now, um, I don't know if we'll ever see it, but they had talked for a while about still trying to make a second one. It'd be nice. Yeah, it would. Um, I don't know. Val Kilmer didn't look very good the last time I saw pictures of him. So Val Kilmer ain't looked good in, in 30 years. So. Oh, Val Kilmer looks good in the sense he's dropped tons of weight now, but um, not for any good reason. Mm-hmm. Like, um, it's because of his cancer, I think. But I, I don't know what's going on there, but he doesn't look healthy. Um... Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I don't know if... I think I agree a little bit with Ebert here in the sense of, like, does the dialogue advance the plot? Does it do these things? I think I agree with him, but I don't think I care whatsoever right. is, is, is yeah, the that's problem. My like, I, I, I still like it, um, you know, overall. Uh, I do want to ask you one question because you texted me... I think it was in the past two weeks at some point, you asked me how I felt about movies that reference other movies. Yes. And I can't remember what movie that was about that you texted me about. Uh, well, I was watching um, Hellraiser 10. I think. Right, right, yeah. And the woman, I don't even remember what she made a reference to. Yeah, I can't uh, remember. Um, Han Solo talking to Chewbacca. Oh, right. That's an interesting smell you've discovered, she says. Yeah, okay. And it's supposed to be very, like, tongue-in-cheek, but it's just dumb. Sure. How did you feel about, like, him referencing, like, Lord of the Rings in this? Because I do think it's an interesting argument. Is like, does it take you out of the movie if they mention other movies? No, because he's a man from the East Coast who's moved to the West Coast to... so you think because it's so much about film anyway yeah. that it's okay yeah. to like it's, it's it's firmly planted in the real world yeah that it's okay. happening all right okay um <clears throat> any final thoughts on this no I mean just again like it's, it's it extremely was, funny and just fun right. movie very like, enjoyable yeah uh, I I. If, I can't, if I, you've I, never seen it, there was at least like five or six times where you'll be so caught off guard yeah. by what happens that you'll both be like, kind of, not not, not enthralled, but like yeah. just, you'll really enjoy it and it's really funny, but it keeps your attention. It's just, it's yeah. really good. Really well done. Yeah. And I, I believe that these, I, I believe Kilmer and I believe all these actors like had a really good time just yeah. making this movie, you can tell. And it, and that doesn't come across as like a inside baseball type thing where it's like they're having fun. It's like they're still doing their jobs, but it's just, you can just tell right. there's a lot of fun on this set. And, um, very much a hidden gem of like the early 2000s, I think, too. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, let's go ahead and move on to number two. Okay. 
Okay, so number two on your list is Miller's Crossing from 1990, directed by Joel Cohen, starring Gabriel Byrne, Albert Finney, John Turturro, John Polito, Marsha Gay Harden. Has a 91% from critics on Rotten Tomatoes and a 90% from audiences. You want to tell us a little about the movie and what you like about it so much? Uh, so another one where kind of hard to distill the plot into like a brief summary, but um, Byrne plays Tom Regan, who's the right-hand man to uh, Albert Finney's, um, oh man, I can't remember, Leo, yeah, uh, crime lord, political boss who runs the crime in a city. Um, Tom is having an affair with Leo's girlfriend, Verna, um, a rival gangster, Johnny Casper, who's like the Italian mob um, boss wants to kill Verna's brother, Bernie, um, basically for being crooked. Um, Leo wants to protect Bernie. Tom tries to talk Leo into that being a bad move. <clears throat> it's a very, I don't know, like Yojimbo-esque with him like jumping sides multiple times. Um, runs afoul of Casper's right-hand man, who's the Dane. Um, oh man, it's so hard to like describe the entire plot. Basically, Leo kind of falls from power. Casper kind of assumes power. Um, Tom manipulates things so that Bernie gets his comeuppance. Leo kind of gets to resume his power again. Um, and in the end, is sort of just left, like, walking down the road by himself. Um, one of one of the earliest, I would call it neo-noirs, neo or, like, modern mm -hmm. noirs that I saw. Um, I, I saw this pretty close to 1990. Uh, one of its video released, probably, like, 91 or 92, I saw this movie. Um, beautifully shot, like maybe the most beautiful movie on this list in terms of like just pure filmmaking. Um, the world is like colorful and lush, but also dark and the way that they seamlessly move from like the city to the forest and the way they film everything. It's just, it's amazing. Um, fantastic dialogue. Like again, like that snappy, like similar to brick, but a little more naturalistic feeling in this. Um, Especially because this is, like, definitely a period piece set during, like, Prohibition. Mm -hmm. So, hearing people use, like, that, like, antiquated, you know, slang talk feels a little more believable. Coming out of, like, the mouths of, like, 50-year-old 50 50 gangsters as opposed to 17-year-old kids. Um, every performance is, is spot on. Um, Burn being, like the best of all of them, like just playing this world weary. Actually, like I, I would say that probably um, the Joseph Gordon Levitt character is like the distillation of Gabriel Burns, Tom Reagan character um, in like the modern, like high school setting. Yeah. He's a little, the, the Brendan character is a little bit more verbally equipped, I believe than Regan is, but at the same time, Regan's maybe, well, he's more devious and smarter than right. He he's he's just as pithy. He just has a better economy of language. Like yeah, there's sure. um, yeah. like he'll he'll instead of having a, you know, almost like soliloquy to like cut someone down, Regan cuts him down with like a mm -hmm. sentence, yeah. and is always like you know. I mean that's that's the thing is both Leo and Casper 
our comment on how smart his mouth is and mm-hmm. <clears throat> you know it's basically just his wits and his his brains that kind of keep him from getting killed even though he almost gets killed a few times sure um but yeah they're finney is fantastic there's one of my favorite scenes in the movie where um casper's goons come to assassinate Finney at home while he's listening to Danny Boy, I think, yes, on the radio, yeah. on his, mm-hmm. like, Victrola. Right. And he basically kills them all with a Tommy gun and then, like, jumps out a window and takes them out. Yeah. And the line after is, like, well, the old man always was a surgeon with a Tommy gun or something like that. Yeah. And it's just... Yeah. Well, it's because it's one of those things you don't expect when you see him is that he's capable of something right. like that. Well, because he comes off as almost, like doting and sort of frazzled because he's mm-hmm. in love with Verna so much and it's making him make bad decisions. And right. you never really see him as like a gangster, but in that scene in the scene where he punches Tom out mm-hmm. and like kicks him out of the, you know, basically like makes him persona non grata. Um, you see like that, that viciousness like mm-hmm. that underlies the almost like overly friendly grandpa type um, role that he plays the rest of the movie. Uh, John Polito amazing in this role yeah. as Johnny Casper. It's probably um, Polito's best role that he ever he's ever, he's ever had probably. Yeah. And just the way like 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 he's giving me the hi hat. He give me yeah, the hi hat. Yeah. Uh-huh. Just his yeah. like yeah. some like savvy enough where you can believe that he's like a crime lord but like sort of slow and uneducated and Wants to put on the airs that he's more educated and refined than he is because now he has money, even though he still is just kind of like a, like a schlubby criminal. Mm-hmm. Um, Totoro, amazing as yeah. Bernie Birnbaum. Uh-huh. Um, one of the most Weasley, smarmy, despicable characters in like mm-hmm. any movie. Um, but from start to finish, it's just, it's incredibly engaging. Um the plot twists are it never feels like it's overwhelming you with with detail like in the way that Ellie Confidential is so complex throughout the entire movie like th- this movie has a lot going on but it builds things naturally for you and lets like <clears throat> the dialogue and the scene like advance the plot as opposed to like throwing like plot devices in and making you remember a bunch of things and trying to figure stuff out like they they don't they don't go into over exposition like they're not holding your hand but at the same time they're also not like flooding you with characters and information. I mean basically it really is like seven or eight characters that actually matter in the in the movie that you really have to remember and they talk about each other enough and they're in the scenes enough where like you never really forget like who's who. Um really one of in my opinion one of the Coen brothers like most iconic shots of you know the the several times where they're walking through the woods like you know when tom is taking bernie out there to shoot him when they're taking tom out there to look for bernie's Mm -hmm. body the hat like blowing along you know the fallen leaves in the woods very very beautiful very iconic um i don't know just it's it's it honestly like it's the best the best homage to like classic noir in a classic setting, but with enough modern, just I guess like aesthetic to it. Yeah, just the way they there's modern the sensibilities in the directorial choices yeah. in the cinematography. Yeah. I mean, it's it's 
at that point, in my opinion, it's their most fully realized movie. And my favorite movie of theirs up until, yeah, actually the next movie on our list, like the mid-2000s. Um, the right amount of, like, wry humor without being, like, overt humor, where it's not slapstick, it's just really well-crafted dialogue that makes you chuckle. Um, I don't know, it, to, to me, it's, it's, it's a pretty flawless movie, like, I don't, there's nothing about this movie that I don't love, and I've watched it, I don't know, like, a dozen times, maybe, in my life. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> twice in the past year really so yeah i knew this was like the one that was definitely going to be on this list oh, yeah. like from this is probably why this list exists really. <laughs> probably yeah um so vincent canby on the new york times which i was surprised to see him still writing at this time i don't know when he retires but <clears throat> late 90s right is I think it vincent canby wrote for a while hmm because, I mean, we got Vincent Canby stuff from, like, the late 60s that, right. like, we, we've used, like, and talked about here. So, he says that, though Miller's Crossing is edited in a manner of a movie that means to be fast-moving, it seems always to stay in one place. The most mysterious thing about it is how a movie with such a simple narrative can often be so difficult to follow. One reason is that it's not always easy to understand what Mr. Byrne is saying. Another is that some events of key importance take place off screen, involving characters who exist as little more than names in the dialogue. That is a serious problem, but the Coens, as students of film history, might console themselves with the knowledge that audiences were once similarly baffled by Howard Hawke's big sleep. Even Hawke said that he didn't understand how the plot was resolved. Yet as Mr. Burns is not Humphrey Bogart and Miss Harden is not Lauren Bacall, Miller's Crossing is not the big sleep. Its occasional pleasures are not long-lived and its jokes are small. It isn't enough to start a scene with Miss Harden discovering, discovered buffing her nails, as Jean Harlow once did. Something of interest should happen afterwards. Miller's Crossing is a movie of random effects and little accumulative impact. I mean, I don't know, I just, I just think that's wrong. Like, number one, like, why would you, I, I guess, like, because it's noir, like, comparing it to The Big Sleep is whatever, but it's not the same thing. I mean, I don't know. I don't know. I just, I, I think that's a bad review. Yeah, and it's, I, I don't, mean, I mean, because it's not, like, I don't know. Comparing The Big Sleep's the wrong thing to compare it to in the first right. place. Uh like, th- this movie draws heavily in terms of, again, you were talking about Brick. I mean, it draws heavily from the idea of Red Red Harvest, right. like the Hammett novel, in terms of the, the plot line. Like, particularly where Continental Op goes in and is, like, basically manipulates the two rival gangs right. and taking each other out, including the police as, as a third gang, almost. And then... um, And then it draws from the Dane Curse. Um... Like, more specifically, like, in terms of dialogue and even some, some of the plot points with, like, relationships and stuff like that. I mean, ultimately... So, it's like it's a Hammett book <laughs> as opposed to a Chandler. Right. Ultimately, Tom, Burns' character, number one, he's not difficult to understand ever in the movie. Like, I, if I, you I, can I, speak English, then yeah, you can understand what he's saying. Well, maybe Cammy was getting old and couldn't hear it. Maybe. He's protecting... The man that he thinks of as his father, basically. I mean, like, everything in that movie is meant to protect Leo, even when he's working directly for Leo's competitor. He's trying to protect him. Sure. 
even as he's sleeping with his, you know, his girlfriend. Yeah. It's just. Yeah. It's, 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 I suppose it's a simple enough plot, but they like, they weave enough nuance into that plot that I, I think it's interesting. And I think that, you know, of course, Marsha Gay Harden isn't Lauren Bacall, but maybe she's a better actress than Lauren Bacall because Lauren (laughs) Bacall ain't that great of an actress. Yeah. I don't know. Vincent Camby can kiss my ass. (laughs) Get out of here, Vincent Camby. (laughs) Uh, yeah, I I do think that there's a lot of interior shots in this movie. Um, but I think that they serve to make the other things that are not interior shots, like inside a room. When I say that, like hallway, the hallway sequence at the end of the movie, right? The the scenes in the woods, like the scenes that down the street, like I think it serves to um. Really, like the Albert Finney, like home sequence and the street sequence, like all those things get bolstered, I think, in their impact by so many things happening behind closed doors. Right. Like it makes it that much more important. The thing, too, is that you're you're seeing the action from Tom Regan's point of view. Sure. Tom Regan doesn't see everything that happens. So you don't see everything that happens. And like. I don't know what it is. Right, yeah. And, and, and Tom Regan is Iago to some degree. Like, the the role that he's playing in this with the Polito character and some other right. characters. Where every those things do take place behind closed doors. Like, when he talks about how the... I, I'm just addressing more of the point that he's talking about where it seems to stay in one place for too long. Because um, I'm assuming he's talking about all the interiors that take place throughout I, it. No, I, I, I think he means plot-wise. Yeah? I mean, the general plot is for... Three quarters of the movie should or should we or should we not kill Bernie Birnbaum? Mm. That's like the entire yeah. yeah like driving force. But I mean, mm. that's where the action lies is like him trying to manipulate events to get this one thing to happen to protect his his boss. Right. God, like you, you think about scenes like when they have when they have Tom captured and the two um the one like bigger like thug comes over. What what does Tom do? Headbutt him in the nose or something yeah. like that? And mm-hmm. oh, Tom, why'd you have to do that? Right, and he yeah. like kind of cries <laughs> yeah, and runs uh-huh. away. Yeah, and then the but, short tough comes in and like just beats the shit out of him. Yeah, and, no, that's like, re- that's really funny. Like, why'd you have to do that? <laughs> them like like the way they shoot that from like so far from the door where like you see I don't know. It's just it's it's so brilliant the way that mm-hmm. it's shot and right. I don't know. I really I know people that don't like this movie, mm-hmm. and I just don't understand like. I mean, I don't get it ever. Like, I don't know. Yeah. I really like this movie a lot. I still don't think I have the, like, the adoration that you do for it, like, to that level. But I still really like this movie a lot. I, I mean, to me, it's, it's almost a perfect film. Like, for what it is. Yeah. You know, and I don't I don't think there's any flaw to it, honestly. Yeah. Like, I just think it's really well done and tightly paced and well acted and, like, fantastically directed. It has an amazing score. Like, there's just so many things about it that just make it a completely fantastic viewing experience okay let's go ahead and move on to number one on the list which is also directed by joel and ethan cohen 2007's no country for old men starring Tommy Lee jones javier bardem josh brolin woody harrelson kelly mcdonald has a 93 percent from critics and 86 percent from audiences i'm curious what the seven percent of critics that didn't like it were Hmm. assholes probably 
Uh, the New Yorker and Hollywood Reporter gave it negative reviews. Dumb. <laughs> so, based off of Cormac McCarthy's novel of the same name, um, really kind of three, three separate main stories that are all about the same thing that kind of are, throughout the entire movie, sort of feel like they're converging on each other. Um, so, Brolin plays Luella Moss, um... It's like a, this takes place in the 80s, so I guess he's like a Vietnam veteran. He is, um, yeah. He's out poaching in the Texas wilderness one day and comes upon a failed drug deal where he finds $2 million in a satchel and a man dying underneath the tree. Um, steals the money, but then wants to go back to give the guy water um, where he's seen by people who are looking for the money. And it's chased. Um, at that point, uh, Anton Chigurh, who's the Javier, Javier Bardem character. Javier Bardem portrays Anton Chigurh, to say it correctly. Um, who's a presumed mob assassin slash serial killer. Gets on his trail. Um, Tommy Lee Jones is a sheriff in the town where Llewellyn lives. Um another one where like it's it it's difficult to explain like the plot generally it's it's Llewellyn trying to get away with the money for his wife while Shigur is tracking him so he can kill him to get the money back and Bell right is Tommy Lee Jones right. character's name yeah, is trying Sheriff to make Bell. sense of like what's happening in his in his town mm-hmm. um really great tense sequences um Moss is not an overly bright protagonist, but he's pretty resourceful. Mm-hmm. And you actually, at a certain point in the movie, think he might get away with it. Um, Jones is a guy who is kind of realizing that his idea of what like law and righteousness is maybe doesn't apply anymore in the current world and sort of feels like he's being left behind by these events. Um really like perfectly captures the feeling of and i say this all the time and i i'm gonna have to find a way to like really like just maybe a word or two that describes this feeling but like the hot emptiness of like the wilderness of like southwestern america is so perfectly filmed by the cohen's um including like you know going into mexico across the border Mm -hmm. Um, some really tense, you know, scenes where Sugar is right on Moss's tail and, you know, is, you think he's going to get him and then he doesn't. Um, and then inevitably it's just a mistake that like costs Llewellyn his life that basically gets him Mm -hmm. killed. Um, but it was probably, you know, from the very beginning, from the moment he took that money, it was inevitable that he was going to die. It's just him trying to stay one step ahead of that death Mm -hmm. so he can like provide for his wife. Um, really, like, eye-opening performance by, um, Bardeem as Anton Chigurh. Um, one of the best menacing killer characters in, like, decades, I would say. Like, mm-hmm. it really is an amazing performance. Um, very nuanced, very controlled, very creepy, um... 
perfectly captures the themes of the book, which is really difficult to do with McCarthy because McCarthy's very <clears throat> abstract in how he presents his themes, yeah. usually in writing, but through dialogue and through the way the Coens film it, you know, to, to me, so my, my interpretation of it has been that Moss is the guy that's in the present and he's just trying to live as long as he can to provide and sugar is like inevitability. Like he's the thing that everyone is trying to get away from, but ultimately is going to catch up with you no matter what. And bell is, you know, the past, like he's a guy that was once relevant, but is no longer relevant and is trying to come to terms with like the fact that he has lost the thing that like moves him. I mean, we were, we were talking about this offline um, earlier tonight where the scene, you know, where, where Bell goes back to the motel where, you know, where Moss has been killed to try and like, sort of just like suss it out and get clues and imagines the killer, like waiting for him behind the door and it, he loses his nerve, you know, it makes it like basically gives him a panic attack and it's what leads to him like retiring from the police force and realizing that he's no longer, you know, but it's done but the thing that I think is so great about that scene, though, is as as much fear as he has of that. Oh, he still is going to do he it. Still goes in. But it's it, it's not it's not the sense that he was prevented from doing it. It's the sense yeah. that the fear happened at all. Right. Where like if he's going to have those moments of fear, like he can't sure. be effective anymore. Right. And you know he's self aware and savvy enough to realize mm-hmm. it. Right. And it's really it's it's sad, you know. Yeah. And he's the you know just the fantastic ending to the movie, like with him telling his wife, we'll talking to his brother and then telling his wife the, the story of his dreams. Yeah. Um, and again, I, again, that's why I kind of think like, you know, these people that came ahead of him and like blazed the trail and he's kind of getting lost behind and he just doesn't feel like he can operate anymore. And, Right, but he sees himself as part of that cycle. Right. The, to some degree, because the dreams do a little bit, contradict each other i think like it shows like the world he wants to live in is the world where he's taking the horn with the light in it like basically like you know the the to guide the path like you know the to light the path forward is his father took it ahead for right. him and was waiting for him out in the dark and he's part of that cycle but the first dream that he kind of glosses over is he can't really remember it very well is his dad gave him some money and he thinks he lost it right and it's like that's there's this idea that he was given a sense of responsibility and he thinks he's lost it. And, and that's the other thing, too, is because, like, he's not really, like, passing that along to anyone else. Right. And because, right. th- yeah, because his, his his second is who who I love that actor. I, I always forget his name. He's right. one of my favorite character actors. Um, uh, But uh, it's kind of bumbling. Because like there's never been a reason to not be. Sure. And yeah. he... Again, his idea of law, his idea of what what is right and what is wrong doesn't apply to a world where, you know, people are just getting, like, murdered in broad daylight. And sure. there's serial killers basically stalking, yeah. like, murdering. And the way that they're being murdered. Right. And the, and the, and the brazenness of some of the murders. Sure. Like, killing the cop, like, in the beginning of that movie, you know. Um, and then murdering a motorist to take his car. Right, and, with that damn device that he has. Yeah, the um, impact gun or whatever yeah. it is. Yeah. Right. Yeah, it's it really is like an iconic character. And it was like immediately 
like so memorable, you know, that, that stalking man in black. Real quick. I just thought of this. Remember he tells Lou Ellen's wife at one point, that story about the, the farmer with the cows that basically is using an impact gun to kill the cows. Yeah. And she says like, why are you telling me this? And he's like, Oh, it's just the thought that popped in my head. Does he, he never makes that connection. Does he like that? Like, cause he, cause they're wondering like, what the hell? Like, how is the bullet like not like come out or whatever? Right. And like, I don't think he ever kind of puts those two things together, right? Like, like consciously puts them together. Well, maybe that's part of the the thing too that he's kind of lost. He's that lost. Step. That's what I'm saying. It kind of goes to the that, idea that he's lost a step that he actually doesn't make the connection, even though that sub subconsciously he yeah. makes the connection, mm-hmm. but he's so I don't know. Befuddled isn't the right word because he's definitely not like a. It's it's not a thing like you can imagine. Guy. Well, that's what you do to animals. It's not right. what you do to humans. And yeah. You can't imagine the idea that somebody would. Treat humans yeah. like cattle. Um, the sugar stuff with the coin flip is fantastic. The way that Llewellyn's wife at the end is like, I'm not going to leave my life up to chance, basically, is really great. I wanted to talk to you about that, too. To some degree, she wins that argument, right? Yeah. Like, and like, and Shigur, that's the first time I think you see him falter a little bit, like, when she tells him, like, that... You don't know, like, that's just an excuse. I'm not choosing, like, you're doing this. Right. Like, the coin's not doing this. And he's, you know, he, but he, like, he looks away and, like, finally comes up with, well, me and the coin got here the same way. Like, but it feels weak compared to a lot of the other things he said throughout. It, it's also the first time that he slips. Like, he's sure. in complete control of everything. And then immediately after leaving there, yeah, he gets in the car accident. The right. kids see him. Like, he's yeah. basically... She's she's ruined his internal justification mm-hmm. for what he's done, and now like you know, I'll tell you how brilliant the Coens are, though. Like just visually, is he comes out of that house because you don't see him kill her, right? But he comes out of the house, and it's that wide shot where you have the whole front of the house in frame, and he comes out of the front door. And sits there and like puts one hand on the banister and lifts up his shoe and looks at the bottom of it. And it's the only way that you know he definitely killed her. Right, because he's looking for blood. Because he's looking for blood on his uh-huh. shoes, which is established in a prior scene where he was very conscious about not getting blood on his shoes. Right. So it's like you have to visually put those things together and... It's just like those little things like that they do constantly that you have to like put those connections together because this movie is very visually methodical. It is. And it's like you have to put a lot of things together. Even when like Llewellyn is early on tracking, like you have to put like the thoughts together because he doesn't speak the entire time really. You have to put it together yourself of what he's seeing and oh, well he's seeing this so this is leading to make this decision and this is why he's doing this. It's it's really well done. Like it's so well done. It is. It's um it's an interesting juxtaposition to Miller's Crossing. And I, I don't know if is this the first time we've ever had two movies from the same director on a list that isn't about like a director? I believe it might be, yeah. Which I've always tried to like avoid doing because it right. feels like Well what the funny thing about that though is is that 
like I, you had texted me about it. Like I just realized this, like you know, um, earlier today or something like that. And it's like I only realized it eight minutes before you texted me that. And because they don't feel like yeah, they don't feel like they're directed by the same people. No, they don't. Yeah, I mean they're because Miller's Crossing very, very stylized, very perfect, mm-hmm. very like. Even though it's like a, a messy movie in terms of crime, it's very pristine and it feels mm-hmm. like controlled. And this movie feels like, I mean, again, like like what you just pointed out with the shoe thing, absolutely like controlled the entire time. But it mm-hmm. feels lawless and barren and uncertain, you know, like mm-hmm. it's it's wide open and expansive, whereas Miller's Crossing is very tight. Yeah. And they work because they it both works into like you know the the elements that the Coens are presenting, mm-hmm. and again Cormac McCarthy like maybe one of my like five favorite writers of all time like I love Cormac McCarthy, mm-hmm. um, really there's not many film adaptations of McCarthy but this is like absolutely like the perfect distillation of McCarthy's language and visual imagery in film like I don't know that. You got like the road, which is a fine adaptation, but it's very, it's just, it's just there. Like the adaptation of the road is just like a very basic adaptation without much like look into the nuance of it. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, James Franco filmed an adaptation of Child of God, <clears throat> which again, is just very matter of fact, like point by point adaptation and really good adaptation of the, of the book, but it kind of misses some of the. I don't know, this weird, like, almost, like, unknowable abstraction that McCarthy puts into, like, the way that he writes language and the way that he writes scene. And uh, the Coen's just, like, looking at it visually, they just capture it perfectly. Like, you Mm -hmm. feel the emotions, like, visually that you feel, like, mentally when you're reading McCarthy's Mm -hmm. stuff. Which is probably the highest praise I can give to, like, any movie. Because, again, like, I love that dude. Mm -hmm. So... What are the criticisms? Um, so Anthony Lane of the New Yorker says that he, if I want Rye Lawman and smart calculating fugitives, I'll get them from Elmore Leonard. And if I want Leonard, I'll take him neat rather than slow filtered drop by drop through a layer of Faulkner than lace with the book of Jeremiah. So he wants just something different. I think is that, the that's idea. a really stupid criticism that actually like, that's actually really insulting because it completely glosses over the fact that like there's a man who's kind of like the heir apparent to Faulkner in his day mm-hmm. like that the the movie is based on I mean it's just yeah if you want some Elmore Leonard like go go, watch go right Elmore Leonard and this have nothing in common right it's two completely different like Cormac McCarthy and Elmore Leonard are nothing in have yeah, nothing this, in common this movie is not about snappy dialogue yeah. and right neat plot points and sure. you know although the dialogue is fucking amazing Look, it's amazing yeah right, right. it's it's, it's very not, and it is snappy in its own way right you know so yeah. the stuff with like Woody Harrelson dealing with sugar and mm-hmm. you know dealing with moss and like yeah. That stuff is all really good. And yeah. Harrelson, like, just being exposed as, like, a complete charlatan almost. Yeah. is like Tommy Lee Jones with his deputy, even with, like, Lou Allen's wife at times. Like, there's some of that stuff that's pretty snappy for him. Like, you, Let me ask you a question. I was uh-huh. thinking about this, like, while you were, you were talking about. So, a couple years before this, uh-huh. maybe? 
or no, a couple years after this, there's a movie called um, The Three Deaths of oh, Melchiatus Estrada. Yes. That Tommy Lee Jones is in. Uh-huh. And it's, it's, o- it's only like a year difference. Yeah. It's it's in the same... It's it's a crime movie. Um, it's similar in tone. And it's filmed in like basically the same area. And you were talking about like Tommy Lee Jones. And I was thinking like... Do you think we underrate Tommy Lee Jones now because we overrated him so much in the 1990s? Okay, so yeah, the three barrels of Melchiata Estrada is uh, 2005. It's actually three years before this. Okay, that's that's interesting. Maybe that's yeah. why he got cast in the role then. Maybe. So I'm sorry. Your question was: Do we I, underrate? I, I think that like we overrated Tommy Lee oh, Jones okay. in the late 80s and early 90s. Like Tommy Lee Jones was like ubiquitous at one point. Like, he was in, like, so many movies when I was a kid. Yeah, I mean, but, I mean, I don't think Tommy Lee Jones really, like, even though he's in a lot, doesn't break through to public, like, consciousness until The Fugitive. That's, like, 90, right? 93. 93? Yeah. And that's when he really is just there in, like, tons of stuff. And then Men in Black, three, like, three or four yeah, years later, so that's, like, really. That, that's kind of what I'm thinking. Like, I feel like, maybe it's just me personally. Like, I was just yeah. like, ah, oh, Tommy Lee Jones, who cares about him? But then like, you see him. In oh, he got like, overexposed during that time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah. that he was so overrated and overexposed that now he's almost like under the radar. Absolutely. So when you see yeah. him, it's just like kind of revelatory. Because that character movie. in the fugitive is, is fucking amazing. Like, yeah. It's a really good character. It really, he's is. much better than Harrison Ford is in that movie. Like, right. That's true. Um, yeah. He's the star of that movie. That yeah. Gerard. Yeah. I mean, this, no Country is probably on my top 50 movies of all time. Oh, it's in my top 20, I think, or 25 or something That's, like that. It's a bold statement. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I can go that high, but it's really good. Mm-hmm. And it's funny because th- it's the same year as There Will Be Blood, too, right? It is. So those two movies, like, in the same year was... I mean, that's amazing that, like, I don't know. The, this, this, this is one of the... This is a better movie. Most perfectly crafted movies that I've seen in the past 30 years. Yeah, I agree with that. Like, in the past, like, since since the, since 90, like, this is probably in my, like, top 10. So. Like, since 1990. Th- this will be, like, my final thing about this movie, I think. A lot of times when, when directors try to make, they ostensibly... A movie is like set in a genre then they try and make it more than just being a genre movie it becomes like muddled or it just gets like really boring or really pretentious and this movie does a perfect job of being an absolutely perfect crime movie just from watching mm-hmm. the events and like following it and like seeing you know the chase and like the inevitable downfall of Llewellyn and like all the elements come together but also does such a great job of just being so, I don't know, like, important and insightful and, you know, the the existential questions that it asks and doesn't really give you any answers to that you have to kind of figure them out yourself. Sure. And there's a hell of a lot more, like, I'm convinced I could watch this movie every week, which I won't because I can't watch movies that I love that often. But right. I could watch it every week for the rest of my life, and there's still stuff that, like, I don't know if I'm going to figure out. Like, there, there's so many, like, little things about, like, there, there's stuff about generational stuff in here that, yeah. like, beyond just the obvious. Like, there, there's stuff with, like, 
and, I, and I'm not going to go into this because I don't know the answer to it, but it's like there's the idea that it's like he asked for the boys that are coming over the bridge when he's gone into Mexico. Llewellyn's all beat up and he asked to buy the one's coat and they try to like grift him basically like and get more out of him and stuff like that. Um, and then there's the idea that Shigur, after the accident, asked for the boy's shirt, like the young kid, like teenage boy. And like the boy gives his like, just like pull, he's like, hell, mister, you don't need to pay it for me. You can have my shirt and just pulls the shirt off his back. Right. It's like, there's something going on there that like, I just can't put my finger on. And I think it's generational to some degree. There's something. I think it's also socioeconomic. Maybe. In some ways. Yeah. But there's, there's, so there's that. And that's also in the, you know, a lot of the Tommy Lee Jones stuff. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, also in the stuff between Llewellyn's wife and her mother, sure, there's definitely sure. like mm-hmm. questions about generations mm-hmm. and what matters to like right. the young as opposed to yeah. the old. Um, there's questions about, I mean, I don't like want to make it like completely political, but like immigrants into the country, mm-hmm. like the differences between like, you know, like a mile of river that separates like these two. The way that the criminals from Mexico are as opposed to the way... Because, you know, they're uncontrolled and wild and Shigur is, like, well... Even though he's obviously, like, you know, a foreigner. Mm -hmm. Like, well-mannered and controlled and methodical. And there's questions about fate. There's questions about the afterlife. There's questions about, you know, what... What is law? What is order? Like, Mm -hmm. what's righteous? I mean, it's just... Every scene, basically, like without like beating you over the head, put something in front of you that you need to digest. And it's, it's a really amazing movie. But yeah. It, le- it leaves these little question marks after so many things that it just sticks with you. I think I beyond being that crime story that you're talking about. That yeah. Well-crafted crime story. Yeah. But it's a beautiful movie. I, yeah. I, I really love it a lot. Absolutely. Okay. So I actually, while we were talking earlier, I remembered one thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know that Mads Mikkelsen is in a trilogy of crime movies from the 90s directed by Winding Refn or however you say his name. Oh, really? Um, it's called Pusher. It's Pusher 1, Pusher 2, and Pusher 3. Okay. About a guy who's a drug dealer who, as he gets older, tries to like divorce himself from it but keeps getting dragged back in. Mm-hmm. Um, they're all really fantastic. They're all okay. on Tubi, maybe, right oh, now. Oh, really? Okay. Um, they're, they're, they're somewhere for free. Yeah, okay. But um, Mickelson, it's it's one of his like earliest performances. Like he's really young in it. Okay. Um, but definitely worth watching. Those yeah. are all really good movies. Okay. Yeah, I'll have to check that out then. Awesome. I couldn't get through Crime Story, <laughs> and I, I think it's um the old like Dennis Farina. Did I did I tell you about watching that? Do you remember that show? Sort of. Uh, it was like on for like two years in the like mid to late eighties. I do remember it. Yeah. Yeah, and like, and it's a really interesting premise where it like the the show the two seasons actually spans like thirty years of Farina's like cop characters trying oh. to like track down this mob like figure. Um, but I it was just it's too old. <laughs> like it's there's like two it's two eighties. Um, That's like there's even though it's a period piece, it was still two eighties. Like. Armand Asante is in some Mike Hammer movies from the 80s that are like impossible to watch because yeah. like it really feels like agreed i've watched i've watched some you're of watching stuff. like yep. the 80s yeah and and especially because they would put modern soundtracks on 
these period pieces like in the episodes right and that was tough because i think michael mann produced it i think if i remember he produced crime story um but yeah that was really tough to get through it's the same thing with wise guy wise guy is a really good show did you watch that when it was on the 80s is ray liotta uh it's not ray liotta i can't remember the no it's the guy that i was ken owen right ken owen like he's where he's like and then kevin spacey's in like a role in like the second season i think like i I wasn't allowed to watch that shit yeah but it's it's a really good show (laughs) i had to watch fucking elf instead (laughs) but but at the same time small wonder um i wasn't allowed to watch that either because my parents didn't like small wonder oh okay uh it's a really good show, but it's really hard to watch just because it's so 80s. And it's, yeah, it's a shame, but so I can watch those pusher movies then. Yeah, you should. Okay. Okay, so that's our show tonight, everybody. Um, thank you for listening. We will be back in two weeks with the uh, top five B-horror movies of 1988. So have a good weekend. Yep, thanks and have a good thanks night. Thanks for listening.